Uh, and of course, we're looking at the life of David um, in 1 Samuel through this semester in Principles Hour. Um, and I, I missed a couple. There were a couple of Tuesdays I was out of the college, and I'm not sure whether any of the other lecturers has mentioned this, but um, this account of David is actually the, the longest narrative presentation of a single human life in all of ancient literature, I believe. Um, so even if you weren't a person of faith um, and, and you didn't attribute to the Bible any sort of moral or spiritual authority, you could still argue that this narrative is worth paying attention to as it unpacks um, perhaps the most comprehensive ancient account of human life and of human nature that we have. And the part of the story that we're up to this week, chapter 18, I think is uh, particularly interesting because it vividly illustrates how to deal with an issue that is common to humanity, um, and that is, of course, the issue of envy. In the 20 years or so that I've been involved in pastoral ministry, I've had lots of people come up to me and say, Simon, can I talk to you about this or that? Uh, seeking help with various problems. Um, you know, I've, I've got a, an issue with, um, with anger or, or I'm burdened by guilt or I'm wrestling with lust or something. I don't think I've ever had anyone come up and say to me, hey, I've got this real problem with envy. Can you, can you help me sort that out? Um, and, and I also confess to my embarrassment, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon particularly about envy uh, before. So anyway, here we go. If you do a, a Google search on the topic of envy... Uh, or, the, or the word envy, you'll get about 143 million responses. Um, interestingly, most of those websites are either shopping outlets or retail products. The HP Envy 360 computer, the Envy Flavio Presenti Scooter, uh, Envy, I can't, I can't really say this with the right accent, Envy by Tony Bianco, the definitive cologne, what every woman wants and every man needs. <laughs> Um, it's almost as though envy has been framed to be a, a positive quality that is just so much a part of our world that we actually, you know, it, it's a framed as a, a positive part of our human makeup that we need to tap into if we're going to get ahead and fulfil our potential in a competitive consumer-driven society. And there's really no surprise that on the one hand, envy is so rampant in our culture, whilst on the other hand, we tend not to take it too seriously. And I think that's no surprise simply because, of course, every year, billions of dollars get spent trying to make us more envious, does it not? I mean, that's the basic premise of advertising, um, to make us want things that we don't have um, or to make us want to be like other people so that we desire the products and the services that they enjoy. Uh, so our society um, in advertising, I think, has dangerously normalised envy. And yet if we look back a little further than the 21st century Western culture, historically the human race takes envy very seriously. Um, Aristotle, for example, listed envy as one of the excesses, one of the vices in his list of virtues. Uh, you probably know that he defined a virtue as the mean between the extremes of excess and deficiency. So, for example, courage is the virtue. If you have too little courage, if there's a uh, deficiency, then you have cowardice. But if you have too much courage, that's also not good. You end up with an excess of courage, which, which means you become foolhardy. And so the virtue of courage is the mean between the extremes of uh, cowardice on one hand and foolhardiness on the other. Now, envy in the thinking of Aristotle then is the excess 
that one experiences when you exhibit too much righteous anger. Uh, righteous anger or indignation, that's where you care about the circumstances of the other in comparison to yourself. Care too much about the other and their circumstances and you end up experiencing envy as a distracting and ultimately a destructive influence. Now Aristotle, of course, is a pre-Christian pagan philosopher um, and in Christian thinking, we, we see, apart from, of course, uh, envy and jealousy being listed in some of the, uh, the, the tables or the lists of, of uh, sins in the New Testament itself, we find um, the Desert Fathers in the 3rd century, right through the writings of the Middle Ages, into the work of the Reformers, envy is variously considered to be this very serious uh, condition described at different times as a cardinal sin or a capital sin or even one of the seven deadly sins. A deadly sin, something that our Christian forefathers thought had the potential to to threaten our very lives. Uh, And if that's true, we should be thinking of envy perhaps not as a virtue to help us compete well in a competitive world, but rather as an insidious and ultimately destructive vice, a disease, a cancer that will rob us of life if we allow it free reign in our lives. So envy we might define as the inability to enjoy what someone else has because of comparison and the inability to enjoy what we have because of resentment. So we can't enjoy the blessing that another receives because of comparison. We think, well, what gives them the right to to have that or to enjoy that or to experience that? Yes, I'm very excited that you got that promotion that I was going for as well. We say through, through a smiling facade, your church is growing. Gosh, that's fantastic. Mine isn't, but you know, that's really good news. The first sign of envy is that you can never appreciate what someone else has and you can't appreciate their success without immediately connecting it to you, without immediately comparing yourself. So envy makes everything about me. Does that mean that it's always wrong to to want something that someone else has or that we should never desire to be like another person? Well, no, of course it doesn't. You know, we read the Gospels and we see Jesus, don't we? And we want to be like him. We want to serve as he served. We want to love as he loved. Why is that not wrong? Why is that not envy? Well, I think because that's motivated by a, a joyful longing rather than an anger or a jealousy. See, I don't want to stop Jesus being good so that I can be better than him in a competitive way. I would just love to be a little bit more like him. It's a a humble desire. It's a joyful desire. Envy, on the other hand, destroys your ability to enjoy what others have because of resentment and it destroys your ability to enjoy what you have because of comparison. And here's the irony. Even although envy makes it all about you, Ironically, it blinds you then from seeing what you have, to to notice how much you already have. Um, You can't enjoy what you have because you keep noticing what the other person has. The presence of the other viewed through envious eyes stops you from seeing what you've got, the good things that you have, the blessings already given to you, what's in your possession. Rather, it keeps you focused on what you don't have. Oxford University Press uh, did a little series of monograms on the seven deadly sins back in the early 2000s. And Joseph Epstein wrote the volume on envy 
um, and made the profound observation that envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins that provides no enjoyment at all for the person participating in it. All of the others are at least fun for a while before they destroy you. You know, gluttony feels good for a while. Yeah, those donuts. Oh, fresh hot. Um, lust feels good for a while. Greed feels good for a while. But envy doesn't. It just it sucks all the joy out of you and out of your life immediately because that's what envy is. Destroys your ability to ever just sit down and, and you know, enjoy the moment because you're comparing Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, our envy of others devours us most of all. There's a a Spanish proverb that says, envy is thin because it bites but never eats. In that sense, envy is a bit like a sort of emotional or spiritual anorexia, you know, a distorted perception of yourself. Comparing yourself to the rest of the world stops you accessing the, the, the nourishment, the emotional and spiritual nourishment that you actually need. So as David, in our passage today, ascends publicly with this sense of open and popular blessing, Saul, bound in the ever-tightening chains of envy, ends up descending into this sort of pit of private brooding. And if we look at it through purely human eyes in this day and age, we might say, well, David, maybe he's just the right guy in the right place at the right time, you with the right skill set to capitalise and capture the public imagination and create for himself this wave of public support that he could ride all the way right into the throne room of Israel. It says in the text in verse 5, I think it is, that even Saul's servants were excited about David. Now, that's, that's a telling text because um, you know, it's, it wasn't like the public service back in those days. If Saul's servants um, are excited about David, then something exciting must be happening. Because if David becomes king and Saul's no longer king, they're out of the, 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 the palace and out of a job. Um, you know, it's not that the public servants stay stable, stable while the minister changes. But um, you know, for, for them to be excited about that, uh, some, something exciting is happening. But while David's star is rising, Saul nevertheless is falling into this ever-deepening hole, this ever-stickier mire, this ever-darkening world. His, his envy and jealousy is forging a, a self-created prison from which he can no longer see the good things he has, nor can he see and appreciate the benefits that the nation is experiencing through David's capacity. And a big part of the problem for Saul seems to be music. After defeating Goliath, as the troops march back to the capital following this historic victory, the women come out and they sing their conquering heroes home. Uh, They sing acknowledgement of the king. But in that, there's an adulation of David. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Now, the commentators on this passage say, look, there's nothing here really to warrant anything other than a happy reading of this particular song. Um, It it seems unlikely to be an exercise of political subversion. There's nothing hostile in it. It just represents genuine joy 
that people who are celebrating a turning of the tide for Israel with this particular victory might be experiencing themselves. This means social and political stability. If there's no longer a threat of being overrun by the Philistines, having your village burned, your, your crops and flocks plundered, your husband or wife murdered, your children stolen, then that's something to be excited about. And that their words of the, the words of the song reflect this perception of the people. But as they sing their happy, honest tune, for Saul, we might say the song is decidedly off-key. Because Saul hears and responds to the song out of this fundamental sense of insecurity and envy, and henceforth music will trigger for him the same sentiment. I don't know exactly what song it was that David was playing as he sat in the palace. David, it appears, was a true Renaissance man though he lived centuries before the Renaissance, a warrior, a leader, but also a poet and musician. I mean, if you want to picture David, just think of, you know, John here. (laughs) Soldier, scholar, musician. Um, But like any true musician, he's he's never happier than when he's got an instrument in his hands. Now, my my son Hamish... uh, any spare minute he has will grab the guitar at home and he just sits in his room for hours and plays. I tell him he should go down to the shops and open his guitar case and do the same thing, exactly the same thing. But actually, we, we, we love having the live music in the house. It's a, it's a lovely thing to experience. And David, I imagine, loved to sit in his spare moments with a lyre in his hands. He probably found it therapeutic, just as my son Hamish does, and to play music. And, and, and people around David similarly found that soothing Usually. For, for Saul, it wasn't, it wasn't the case. And, and on the occasion that's recorded in verses 10 to 12, there was something in the music that David played that relit the fuse of Saul's envy. Now, maybe David was dumb enough that he played the same song the women had been singing. Hey, this is a snappy little tune. It's got me in it. Maybe I'll play that one. Or maybe it was just another tune that reminded Saul of it. But the music set Saul into this raving frenzy to such an extreme that everybody watching thinks there's, there's something more in this than, than just what's normal. This obsessive envy and jealousy uh, is, is somehow an embodiment of evil for which we don't really have an explanation. And it's out of that mode, out of that sentiment, that Saul ends up hurling a spear in David's direction, hoping to pin him to the wall. And, and I don't think this is referring to sort of a tricky Robin Hood arrow shot where, you know, it just catches the shirt and pins you to the wall. I think that Saul wants to stick the spear into the wall after it's travelled through David. And this happens twice, we're told, in the text. And that's quite significant. I haven't got time to go into it and why it happening twice is important, but um, it is in the wider scheme of things. But on neither occasion is this successful. And because he doesn't succeed, Saul then tries plan B. If I can't hit him with a spear, well, then I'll... um, And by the way, the the spear um, carries all sorts of interesting imagery in ancient writing about a symbol of a spear representing the authority of one person over another. Um, When you're facing the pointy end of a spear, you really are in a one-down position. And so Achilles is usually pictured with his spear uh, raised to symbolise his prowess and his capacity to dominate. Zeus similarly stands, not with a spear in his hand, but with a lightning bolt in his hand, which carries the same sort of image to show his dominance amongst the gods. 
But the spear doesn't work for Saul, so he, um, he says, all right, I'll go to plan B. I'll make him a commander of a thousand. I'll send him out in front of the troops to face the enemy. Hopefully they might do my dirty work for me and I'll be able to sleep well again at night. Um, but of course that didn't work. The bigger the challenge, the more David succeeded. The greater the odds against him, the greater his reputation became. And it says in verse 16, all Israel and Judah loved David because he was kicking Philistine butt, is my little paraphrase. But he was leading the soldiers out and he was bringing them back home again. He was getting the job done. Even Saul, we're told, in verse 15, was in awe of David. But instead of letting that awe develop into this sort of loving admiration, uh, in Saul it festered into an envious fear that actually dominates this narrative right through to the end of 1 Samuel, uh, right through until Saul's death. But it betrays so much about Saul's heart. And this whole situation, I think, is illustrated particularly poignantly in one verse, which from Saul's point of view, I would say would have to be the saddest verse in the whole of the Bible. And that's verse 12. It says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. The Lord had departed from Saul. Isn't that a heartbreakingly tragic thing to contemplate, you know, that the Lord might depart from us. Of course, it's anthropomorphic language. God is everywhere and by his spirit, he is the animating essence within all of us, moment by moment, giving us life. So to say that God had departed from Saul is probably more a comment about Saul's fearful and envious heart being so closed in upon itself that there's just no room left for God anymore. Pascal talks about the God-shaped void in our lives that we try and fill with other stuff, you know, romance and career and money and possessions and family, all sorts of things. Of course, nothing satisfies because the void is God-shaped, but we still try and stuff other things in it nevertheless. Envy leads us to obsessively fill our God-shaped hole with positive self-regard that we extract from the process of comparing ourselves to other people. In other words... In an envious circumstance, we fill the void with ourselves. And if you are full of yourself, how can there be any room left for God? Now, God doesn't make a big fuss when he departs. He just quietly and graciously steps to one side. He lets you carry on in the direction that your choices will inevitably take you. You might still be doing the same things that you always did. You might be going to church every week. You might be leading a church every week. But instead of mission and outreach and helping and serving, energizing you as it does when God's spirit is at work in the situation. Instead, these things drain us and we get run down and depleted. And in the end, we realize that we're just going through the motions. <laughs> the fire's gone out. We're like a Hollywood movie set, uh, a row of, of buildings that are actually just a facade. You walk through the door and there's nothing there. It's just there for appearance, a tragic situation. All of this just seems so depressing. But wait, <laughs> there is a solution. And to see the solution, the narrator invites us to stand back and to look not only at Saul, but also at his son, Jonathan. For in these two men, we see two different ways of relating to a heroic saviour-like figure. One response is to let fear and envy grip and overwhelm us until we get to the point where there's no room left in our lives for God. That's the Saul option. But then there's the Jonathan option. So we read that from uh, verse 1, when David had finished speaking to Saul, 
The soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then in verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped off the robe that he was wearing, and he gave it to David and his armour, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Other than the Saul option, the Jonathan option is to bend our knee in humble submission. And when we choose that option, far from being diminished or enslaved or lessened in any way, we actually find ourselves being raised up into relationship, being given value and purpose and life that comes out of that sense of relationship and intimacy. And this is what Jonathan did. If anyone had a lot to lose because of David, it was Jonathan. He was heir to the throne. David was his immediate opponent. They were direct rivals. So what Jonathan does is radical. He takes off his robe, his armour, his sword. He gives them to David. When he takes off his robe, many of the commentators say there's this sense of handing over the crown rights. He is giving to David uh, his, his sense of position. But even more than that, and, and the text highlights it. It's, it even gives him his sword. I don't know if you sort of can picture those old movies when someone hands over their sword in submission. But when you offer it to someone, you do so hilt first, don't you? And when you do that, it makes you radically vulnerable. They could, they could grab the sword and kill you with it. If you're Ehud, you'd do it with your left hand. They could, they could do anything to you they want. And to offer someone your sword hilt first is a way of saying command me. It's a way of saying, I want to serve you. Why would Jonathan do that? Well, I think because he looks at David and he sees not a problem, not a competitor, but rather the solution for God's people. He says, I I can see God's salvation is coming to the people through you. And the only way I can participate in that is to get off my throne. And therefore, that's what I'm going to do. You could say that Jonathan performed a profoundly illustrative gospel action. Why is it a gospel action? Well, for two reasons. First, because I think it models for us what Jesus himself did. Though he was God, he did not consider God equality, uh, equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross as Philippians says to us. Do you know what the name Jonathan means? It means Yahweh has given or Yahweh's gift. Jonathan basically means grace, a gift of God. And in a profound way, Jonathan here, I think, prefigures the grace that we would see fulfilled in Christ centuries later as Jesus took off his robe and took off his armour and stripped himself of all advantage, making himself vulnerable, facing the pointy end of the sword and the spear as he submitted himself to death on a cross at the hands of a corrupt humanity. But the second reason this is a profound gospel action is because both Jonathan and then Jesus model for us then what we are required to do as well. Because if we're ever going to be lifted up into any sense of real and genuine and authentic relationship with God that's marked by intimacy and soul-defining love, then we need to follow Jonathan's lead. We need to follow Jesus' lead. We need to step off, as corny as it sounds, the throne of our own lives. We need to give up our rights to self-sovereignty, which is just such a countercultural and really a counterintuitive thing to do. 
This is my life. I'm going to, like Frank Sinatra, do it my way. And don't you or God or anyone else tell me what I'm supposed to think or do. I'll decide for myself what's right and wrong. I'll decide for myself what's good and bad. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. I will control the circumstances of my life. I will tenaciously hang on to my own agenda. I will be king, even if it's only king of my own little country, population one. But Jonathan says, no, I'm going to take off my crown. I'm going to take off my robe. I'm going to hand over my armor and even my sword. I'm going to make myself vulnerable and pledge my allegiance to God's anointed, to God's chosen one. Just as Jonathan bows his knee to David in order to be lifted up into meaningful and purposeful and intimate relationship with him, we also obviously have to bow our knee, not before David, but before the son of David, Jesus. It's a simple choice before us all. We can push God out of our lives and be consumed by the envy of Saul, or we can participate in Jesus' lordship and be defined by the obedient love that Jonathan models for us. So which way are we going to face today? Inward or upward? Let's pray. Jesus, we we just think of that time when blind Bartimaeus sat by the side of the road and cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And you turned and touched him and gave him sight and lifted him up and drew him into a life of meaning and purpose and intimacy. And Lord, we want to confess that far too often we have come to you with the posture of Saul, full of envy and jealousy, obsessed with self, trying to use you, manipulate you to our own end, desperately trying to control and manage and promote ourselves. But we'd love to just give that up. We'd love to surrender, Lord. We'd love to take off our crown and our robe to come to you as Jonathan did, to bow the knee and to acknowledge you as Lord of our lives. Give us the grace, give us the strength to continue to you in this posture throughout the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We can, if anyone has any questions. There's a couple of little crackers in that passage, actually. (laughs) Mark. It saddens me that we go from one king to the next king because of the amount of people that have been killed. But that tends to stand out to me more than anything else. And, it, and Saul was probably, as the first king, was appointed because they wanted a king. Yeah. So the value sets of him being the first king would have been quite vague. They wanted a king because other countries had kings. And Ta- yet, yep. David comes along and impresses everybody mm. in, in contrast to another country by killing as many of them as he can. So he's the next one that gets appointed a king mm-hmm. under a whole new set of values. And it saddens me as well that Jonathan ships across from his father to identify what they presume God's grace is for this next king that's been appointed under a, a whole new set of values. Mm. So it, it does concern me as a pacifist as I always consider myself. Yeah, I, I could imagine that, that Mark. That something that the development of a king through Christ who was the complete you know, topsy-turvy of any of this. Death was not involved other than his own. Mm. So it saddens me that mm. 
David was initially appointed under uh, something which was important to them at the time, which was to maintain the boundaries of their country. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that sense, uh, you know, this, this event is certainly contextualised in that way. Um, and, uh, and I think you've just preached a great little sermon there about, you know, the, the contrast between the, the limitation of, of understanding of the Israelite people at that time, living in the world as they did, uh, I guess, you know, in that sense of progressive revelation, it just took God many centuries to get people to the point where they could even conceive of a king like Jesus, you know, where that could make any sense whatsoever. Um, yeah, good point. Thank you. Um, Simon, I wanted to ask, it might sound like an obvious question, but was David aware of Saul's sort of hatred or envy towards him? And how, what was his response to that? Like, did he just brush it off and go to war and carry on? Yeah. Or did it hurt him? Like, how did he respond to that? As the spear came whistling past his yeah. ear, I think he was, he was fairly aware of what was going on. And, 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 you know, coming up in the text, there are lengthy passages where, where Saul sets the whole army after David to try and, yeah. try and kill him. Um, and, and, and actually, you know, I mentioned about how important it is that there were two occasions when, when he tried to kill David. And uh, I guess many of the commentators set that in contrast to two occasions when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, when the army were after him and he, you know, he snuck into the camp and he pinched Saul's sword or whatever it was. And he stands and says, I could have killed you, but I didn't because I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. So, so that, and, and, you know, going back to Mark's question, I think that sort of commitment of, of, of faith to, to God in, in David's heart, uh, in, in that we see this, this sense of, um, you know, it's, it, I, I, won't, I won't touch Saul because of my desire to honour God. Um, he's not into revenge. He's, he's taking no, no. So, so he won't. He won't touch. That, that's why he's such a. You know, Jonathan is is the true opponent of of Saul of uh, of David rather. Um, David won't do anything to touch Saul while he's king, while he is the Lord's anointed. Um, but it's it's when Saul happens to die that the throne will be open. That you know, and so so that's what makes Jonathan's action so extraordinary in 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 his commitment of. Uh, of, of loyalty and submission, in a sense, to David. Yeah. Uh, I was just... In verse 10, the phrase, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Yeah. And that phrase, like, doesn't match with my understanding of who God is. And yep. I was just wondering if, if someone could help me understand, like... What the? Like, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, look, time's up, so um, we might finish there. No. Um, yeah, uh, look, I, I guess I would explain that by saying that there's a sense, those observing that event are saying there's something more going on here than just the normal expression of jealousy or anger or rage that we might be seeing. It's as though there's an evil beyond just human evil um, at, at, at work in this, in this context. So there's... So there's you know, attributing to the spiritual realm that, that which is above and beyond just the human experience of things. But the, the tricky part for us is that it says it's an evil spirit from God. And I don't know, the Old Testament lecturers might like to pick me up on this, but my understanding is that there wasn't a strong sort of um, 
theodicy developed by that time. So the sense of evil and and Satan wasn't a well-developed thing. And so whatever was happening in the spiritual realm in their minds was attributed uh, ultimately to God's action, whether it was something that God was permitting or whether it was something that... um, yeah, so so I think that would be the the most obvious explanation. Because mm. you get you get the Lord meeting with a council of you know His heavenly host, and there's an evil spirit like in one Kings twenty two mm. steps forward and says, "I have a plan," and God says, "Good, let's go with that." And we read it, we think, "Whoa!" But yeah, read that one. It's a that's a pearl. Yeah. But I think that's spot on. That in the Old Testament we don't have this well developed. There isn't a well developed sense of. Satan in his cohort and God in his cohort in opposition, like we do, well, like some of us do now. Mm. But you see that developing and emerging. It's that sense of progressive revelation again. Um, You know, people slowly over time making sense of things and understanding what's going on. Mm. The question I have, Solomon, is about more, I thought it was such a thoughtful introduction, the way you're talking about envy and the way you could draw on Solzhenitsyn or or Aristotle and these different people. So maybe you could talk something about your approach to preparing that talk. So what do you do, you know, when you realise, okay, I've got this sermon, um, it's going to be 1 Samuel 18. Yeah. First thing I do is I... Yeah, sure. I, I, sit, I, I sit down and read the passage. I pray. <laughs> I read the passage, write down everything I can think of. Um, I mean, envy just seemed to be the obvious theme that was coming out of it for me. So then I... Um, I don't know, I guess I just sort of remembered that Aristotle had envy as one of his vices because I taught ancient philosophy at CHC a couple of years back um, uh, and then did a bit of a Google search for, for other... So the Solzhenitsyn quote um, and, and the, uh, the Spanish proverb, you know, were, were out of different sources. Um, so I just, I just read a bit around envy uh, and what it was, but then fairly quickly put that aside because I don't want that to be the dominant thing and went back to the text and said, well, you know, what aspects of envy is this text actually illustrating and went back to the, um, the story to see how it might weave together. So I guess sort of naming envy for me was just um, identifying, uh, make it that, that connector. So I, even though I know I'm preaching to the choir here, I still preach in principles out like I would to a congregation, yeah. assuming that not everyone's a Christian because uh, I'm just wanting to, I guess, partly at least model, and I think we can learn hopefully something from it anyway. But, you know, what, what the challenges are that you would want to put to a, a congregation of people who, who aren't already totally committed like you guys are.